0: The Baha'i Perspective is a radio program presenting biographical interviews of people who have chosen the Baha'i faith as a way of life. Today, I'm playing a telephone interview with Daryl Rogers, who is a singer and songwriter. Darrell's most recent CD is called Plain and Simple. He has a trio that includes Rick Heyman on bass and Michael Parker on drums. I had Daryl select a few songs to play and talk about in the interview, some of which come from his new CD. You can also find Daryl on his YouTube channel, youtube.com forward slash Daryl Elmer Rogers. I started the interview by asking Daryl where he grew up and what was it like growing up there.
1: I was born in Virginia, and I grew up in northern Virginia, about 25 miles due west of Washington, D.C., in Loudoun County. When I first first moved there as a young boy, it was fairly rural, a lot of farmland and whatnot. A few years later... Suburban development moved in and started converting the farms into crops of houses <laughs> in the thousands. And today it's hard to recognize the place when you go back. But uh, growing up there was very good. I had a really good situation. Being far enough out in the country, we had a little pond there at the entrance to our community, and I could Ride my bicycle all over the place and go down and swim anytime I wanted in, in that pond and
0: pedal home. I was a free-range child, let's say. <laughs> <laughs> so what was religious life like, like okay. growing up for you, Daryl?
1: In yep. my little community, we had a Methodist church that initially met in the basement of a house that the congregation had bought for the preacher to live in. So it was the preacher's house. But it was owned by the congregation, and we held church services in the basement. We had Sunday school and everything. My religious training actually started much before that, when I was even too young to read. My father took it upon himself to read to me the Bible. In fact, we went through it completely twice before I turned six years old. And so I, uh, I was pretty well-versed in the stories of the Bible by the time I hit Sunday school. Uh, my father, in that, I guess, Masonic tradition, uh, following the, in the footsteps of Abraham, wanted to give his first child to God, he said. And so that's why he focused so much of our personal time in those early years on religious schooling for me at home.
0: Interesting. When did music become an important part of your life?
1: I, I can never remember a time when music was an important part of my life. I, uh, I grew up in a rather musical home. My mother played piano and sang. My father loved to sing. Neither one of them were professional at all, but they just, we just loved music. Had music playing or, or the piano going. My grandmother, who lived about two miles down the road on the Potomac River, had an upright player piano, 400 different piano rolls, and that was one of those pianos where you you pump the pedals at the bottom, and the paper scroll goes around, the air blows through the holes, and the piano plays by itself, and as that scroll rolls up, the words come by, because they put the lyrics on it, and my grandmother would have what she called sing-ins down at her house, and the whole community would come over and gather around that player piano, and Sing those songs as my grandfather played every one of them on his fiddle. So there was always music in in my life. I think that I first started dabbling with writing my own songs probably when I was about eight or nine years old. And then uh, I started playing piano when I was like six and pretty much gave it up by the time I was ten. My instructor said that I was wasting my mother's money and her time because I wouldn't practice it.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> but at age 11, I took up the saxophone, and I played that all the way through through uh, the rest of grade school and high school and played in a, a dance band, or the school's uh, big band, dance band, as well as you know your typical marching bands and all that kind of jazz. Had a lot of saxophone time
0: and when did you pick up the guitar
1: well i started playing guitar my senior year of high school it was a little cheap piece of junk actually it was my it was my little brothers they had given it to him as a present he didn't really want to have a thing to do with it so i picked it up and taught myself to play i did well enough that when i graduated high school my father said uh, i want to give you a graduation gift of a decent guitar so we went down to a music store in Falls Church, Virginia. And I picked that one off the wall, and I think back then it was like 110 bucks or something like that, which to me was a tremendous amount of money back in that day. And I, I've had that guitar ever since. I've had the guitar for almost 40 years now, over 40 years.
0: Oh, you still have the guitar. i traveled all around the world with it. Wow. I still have it. That's amazing. Along with about eight others. <laughs> <laughs> So what did you do after high school?
1: Well, when I was in high school, that was the 1972, the year of the last draft. And I finished number nine. First time I'd finished in the top ten. <laughs> number nine.
0: Oh, lucky you.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, you know what? I don't really want to go to Vietnam in the mud. So I figured if they were going to send me there, I wanted to have a little protection around me and followed in my father's footsteps and went down and joined the navy in april of 72 on a delayed entry me and my buddy joe we went down and signed up to go on active duty that summer in july and that's what we did and i spent about five years in the navy and when i got out of the navy in 1977 i uh, moved out to ogden utah to join a friend that i had met during my time in the military an air force guy named Rick Graves, and he and I went out there and started a band called Wasatch Front. If you've ever been to Ogden, Utah, the Wasatch Rockies there are sometimes referred to as the Wasatch Front. It looks like a sheer cliff almost there in front of Ogden. So whenever they do the the weather reports, they'd say, and the weather tonight along the Wasatch Front is, and I said, wow, that's cool. We get free advertising by choosing this again. (laughs) And uh, we had a good time, worked our tails off, but really made no money. And moving back to Virginia in 1981, leaving the band and everything behind.
0: So what did you do to earn a living?
1: Well, when I got out there, uh, having been trained in electronics in the Navy, I uh, took my resume over to Hill Air Force Base which is in Clearfield, Utah, right next to Ogden. In fact, they use Ogden as their address. And I eventually got hired on by a, a government contractor there who uh, had a microwave system that ran from Ogden, Utah, all the way out to Wendover, Nevada, and tied into other, other sites all connected all the way into California. And that was for the, uh, the Air Force's test range. So we would run telemetry data and things across that micro-system. And I did that for about four years. And it it required a lot of uh, travel out in the high desert in four-wheel drive vehicles, driving sometimes in the middle of the night for a couple of hours across the desert. There was a certain romantic appeal to it, being a range rat, as they used to call us, and Going out there and spending the night babysitting equipment as they flew, flights and cruise missiles and things like that overhead. (laughs) So I did that for four years. When I left Utah, I got a job back in the Washington area with another beltway bandit uh, a defense contractor there doing communications for the Navy. And it's been uh, basically one company after the other through the years. And uh, I'm still doing that kind of work now, but the company I work for now is headquartered in San Diego, California. I moved out to California in well, the end of 1995, and uh, when I remarried in 2006, my dear bride and I discovered that she did much better health-wise when we visited my daughter, who was going to school in Arizona, and so we moved to Arizona for her health. My company was very lenient with me, and I'm now a telecommuter, so I work out of my home When I have to, I get in the car and drive to the airport and fly to meetings in California or Pennsylvania or wherever I have to go to to do my job. But it's nice to have an office right in my home. My commute is very short. Right. (laughs) Down the hall with a cup of coffee. Right. (laughs) Not bad.
0: Now, Darrell, when was it that you ran into the Baha'i Faith?
1: The Baha'i Faith is not that that new, you know, so it's it's not it's not uncommon even today to find people who have never heard of it. But it was even more true back in the early 1970s. Uh, I have to attribute the coming of the Baha'i to my dear friend Mike Lindsay, who you interviewed a couple of years ago. That's right. Out in Tucson. Mike and I grew up together in Virginia. We, uh, we've known each other since we were in the seventh grade. In high school, Mike... Uh, ran off and did some exploring of various philosophies, and he knew that I had dabbled in uh, mystical religions and studying different philosophies and things. And I was in the Navy already, in a home on leave, when he and another good friend named uh, Rick Cole took me to my first Baha'i fireside in northern Virginia, <clears throat> and it clicked. It was the first time I had seen... Spirituality and good logical common sense come together in one package. <laughs> so I was very impressed and I began to read. Somewhere around June of nineteen seventy three, I guess it was. I had been reading passages of Baha'u'llah in a compilation called Baha'i World Faith. It's no longer in print, I don't believe it's I don't think it's published anymore. But that was my first real Baha'i book. And I got about halfway through it, and I told my mother as we were standing in the kitchen, I said, you know, I know I'm only 19, so I'm not that smart, but yet I'm smart enough to know that I need some guidance in my life, and if I'm going to choose a path to follow, it's going to be this Baha'i faith. Mom, I think I'm a Baha'i. And She turned to me and looked at me, and she said, that's nice. Laughter <laughs> <laughs> and so then my only hesitation was, What's my father gonna think? So I left my copy of The High World of Faith sitting out on the end table in the in the living room, knowing that he'd eventually find it. And sure enough, after a day or so, I came through the living room and there he was sitting in a high back chair, had my book in his hand, reading the pages, and I sat down diagonally across the room from him and just waited in silence. And he turned the page and continued reading, and another page, and another page. And then he closed the book, and he looked up at me, me, and he said, you know, this has merit. And that's the last words he ever spoke to me about the faith. (laughs) Mm
2: -hmm.
1: (laughs) But it it made me feel good that he did not object, and it wasn't going to be, you know, turmoil at home. So I had no qualms about telling people that I was a behind. But, you know, back then, Baha'is were a little hesitant to tell people about becoming a Baha'i. There were so many there were so many aggressive evangelists walking around shouting at you that everybody was fearful of sounding like one of them. So they were very reserved in what they'd say, and you almost had to pull information out of them. So I had no idea that in order to become a Baha'i you should sign a card declaring your faith in Baha'u'llah and your willingness to obey the laws and live up to the the standards set by Baha'u'llah and the Universal House of Justice as well. I didn't know about that card. And so in June, I went back to my ship after having some leave. The ship was getting out of the, the shipyards at the time, and they were making new dog tags for the crew. And dog tags are those little metal identification tags that hang around a serviceman's neck, has your name, your service number your blood type, and your religion on it. And they make those things in kind of a teletypewriter-looking device that just basically types the letters into a metal blank. And they put it on a chain around your neck it goes. Well, the guy's sitting there typing, and he's taking my information, my numbers and everything, and he says, and religion? And I said, Baha'i. And he looked at me and said, but what? I said, Baha'i, B-A-H-A-I. Well, instead of typing, he looked up on the wall on his list of religions, and he ran his finger down the list. He got to the bottom. He says, nope, not here. You're another. I said, I'm not another. I'm a Baha'i. He said, well, it's not on the list. I said, what does it matter? It's the same number of letters, B-A-H-A-I-O-T-H-E-R. It's the same number of letters. Just type it. He said, yeah, why not? So he typed B-A-H-A-I. So I had my dog tag that said Rogers, Daryl Elmer, had my number on there, and it said The high, A positive. Then I put those on proudly and wore them all summer. And now during that summer, as the ship was still getting ready to go back out to sea, I would take the weekends, get off on a Friday about 4 o'clock, and get in my car, which was a bit of a hot rod I might have. I had a 64 Corvette. And I would drive 225 miles north to attend that fireside I knew about in Northern Virginia. I didn't know there were Baha'is in Norfolk. I thought they were all up there in Northern Virginia, the only Baha'is I knew. And so I'd drive 225 miles directly there from Norfolk on a a Friday night to get to an 8 o'clock fireside. And I did this through December and then about August. In fact, it was August the 26th. I remember the date. We just had a wonderful fireside, and I knew that I was getting ready to to get underway with my ship. We were going to go to sea. We were in the kind of like a social time after the fireside. Everybody's visiting and chatting and whatnot. And I said, "Uh, by the way, I'd like to get on your mailing list. And everybody looked at me kind of funny and said, what are you talking about? I said, I want to get on the Baha'i mailing list. He said, mailing list? I don't understand. I said, you get this, you have this magazine paper called American Baha'i that comes to you, right, every month? You said, yeah, or every two months, whatever it was. I said, I want to get back. I want to get on the mailing list. Dead silence. Everybody's just looking at me like a deer in the headlights. And finally, somebody in the back said, I think he wants to declare. And my friend Mike looked at me and said, Daryl, do you want to become a Baha'i? <laughs> and I reached in my shirt and I pulled out my dog tags and I showed him the Baha'i on there. I said, no. I am a Baha'i. I want to get on the mailing list. So <laughs> well, the place kind of went crazy. I guess they'd never seen anybody declare in metal before. And they ran around and found a card, and I filled it out, signed it and everything. And since five members of their spiritual assembly were at the fireside that night, they quickly convened and met with me and two other people who also declared their faith that very same night. And one of those two others was a lady named Marty Cooper who a year later would marry my best pal Mike Lindsay and they're still together today and they live down in Tucson and you've interviewed Mike in the past. So that's that's my behind Gene pool story. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I attribute my, Mike Lindsay with uh, yeah. nurturing me through that process.
0: All right. So why don't we get into some of your music here, Daryl? Okay. So... I asked you to pick several selections from your repertoire, and so I thought maybe we'd go through each one, and you can sort of give a background of, of each, and then we can uh, play the piece.
1: Well, I think the first one I sent you was called Nightingale. Nightingale was the very first song I wrote as a Baha'i, and it's a Baha'i-oriented song. It's about Baha'u'llah and the Ba'am. I kind of call it my fireside song, because it kind of tells a little touches on the history, but also on the spirit that I was feeling at the time. And although I was only 19 when I wrote it, it still today is, is a fun song to sing. It starts off kind of slow and melodious, and then kind of kicks into a little foot stomping and before it's over, I guess I have this this inner foot-stomping urge that I can't suppress very well for very long. (laughs) So a lot of my songs are energetic, let's say. By the way, that that was the first song that I recorded for my very first CD called Each One Teach One, Songs for the Army of Light. After I got married, my dear bride said, you ought to record just your Baha'i teaching songs for the Baha'is out there. And I said, okay, I'll do it. And I had a little portable recorder and some very cheap equipment. Mm-hmm. So the quality isn't real good. But with what I had, I did the best I could, stumbling forward, and mm-hmm. produced a CD with about uh, 10 songs on it. And mm-hmm. that's,
0: that's one of them. All right, so uh, this is Dale Rogers singing his composition Nightingale.
2: Who taught men, oh high- how? Daddy, Daddy. kingdom in his eyes His love is like a sun that will never set on me And I know that through this teaching, great God, I'll go on reaching out for thee. He called himself a nightingale The nightingale of parents Kingdom in his eyes Now that i found him Wanna build my world around him Oh Lord Please grant that I might be A light for all to see Your word He called himself a nightingale, the, the nightingale The nightingale of paradise them in his eyes, oh, in his eyes, in his eyes, in his eyes.
0: All right, so the second selection that you chose was a piece called Seven.
1: Seven to me is a powerful song. It's a tribute, of course, to the Baha'is in Iran called the Yaran, which means, I think, the friends or something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they were the seven Baha'i administrators who uh, were helping administer Baha'i affairs in Iran after the Iranian government had outlawed our spiritual assemblies over there. You know, we can't have an administrative order. So these these seven Baha'is had been given the task of ministering to the Baha'i community in an unofficial capacity in some ways, you know, just to try to keep everybody connected. Well, the government apparently didn't like that either. And they arrested them all and threw them into a very, very nasty prison. A lot of people are familiar with it. It initially was the Evan prison, Now, Some of them have moved to even worse conditions since then. But uh, it, it doesn't take much imagination to, to know that prisons in Iran are, are no laughing matter. At the time I wrote the song, they had been in prison for two years, and now it's been four. At the, at the time I wrote the song, the two ladies in the group had been transferred to, a, to an even more despicable prison, and I'm sure the, uh, the regime over there had hoped that the other prisoners would actually kill those Baha'is. It hasn't happened. And in fact, those delightful spiritual people have won the hearts of many of their co-prisoners, but all the parts of this song are done by me: guitars, drum track, the bass, the vocals. I just I did it here in my little studio here in uh, Casa Grande, Arizona. Posted it up; and it was available for free download for a long time, and I, I think I might have to add that back to my download site just to make it available now.
0: Yeah, and I think you also left a YouTube. Link. That's right. All right. So this piece is called Seven, which is a composition by Daryl Rogers.
2: seven angels prayed toward heaven I saw fourteen palms turned upward toward the sky in a hellish hole known as heaven in a scene so sad it made me want to cry but the fourteen hands then formed a circle In a sea of tears shed from twelve million eyes Dreamed I was hearing seven voices Sing a hymn only hearts could recognize The seven great Godlies break these shackles Let us walk in sunshine once again. The seven pray only for their homeland, imprisoned by the ignorance of. In a dark and dirty cell, they huddle Each other's eyes hold all the hope they'll get They've been captive over two years now But the seven angels are not finished yet And the families waiting suffer greatly Courageously they fight the urge to grieve When the children ask, why did this happen? They can answer only, because we believe The seven pray God, please break these shackles Let us walk in sunshine once again Seven pray only for their homeland. In prison by the ignorance of men, the ignorance of men. could be the motive for torturing seven angels such as these do you believe that sacrificing lambs of god will somehow your demons magically appease <laughs> will our angels someday simply vanish Like the other angels done before And do you think your regime can escape justice When God himself asks What did you do that for The seven brave God Please break these shackles In sunshine once again, the seven pray only for their homeland, imprisoned by the ignorance of men, imprisoned by the ignorance of by the ignorance of men. Imprisoned by the ignorance of men.
0: Now, uh, the next piece that you picked, Daryl was a piece called Second Chance. So maybe you can talk talk to us about yeah. what that was that about.
1: Yeah, this is kind of the secular side of life here. You know, in addition to my Baha'i-oriented songs, I I write a lot of other stuff, too. And this is one that's a local favorite here in, in Arizona. And we've played it a number of times around uh, around the state. And I, I sent you that recording because it's it's got my trio on it. I'm joined on that by both... Rick Heyman on bass, and Michael Parker on drums with the Daryl Elmer Rogers Trio. It's always a fun song to do. People like to get up and dance to it and whatnot. The motivation for the song, uh, back in the early 90s, my dear uncle, Dale Witherow, who is a professional artist, fine art painter, does a lot of abstracts and things, he uh, was about to marry uh, my Aunt Vitha, They had actually lived together for a number of years, many years before, had separated because they each had children by previous marriages, and they wanted to be near their growing young adult children. And hers were out on the West Coast, so she went out to Seattle, and he stayed in Pennsylvania with his, and and for 10 years, they kind of pined for each other. And then finally, at someone's suggestion, he called her up, and within three days, he was in Seattle visiting her, calling the kids on the phone saying, this time Vita and I are getting married for real. (laughs) And we were all delighted. So I like to tell people this story. I like to say that he's the only man I know who divorced his wife before he married her. (laughs) Because while they were together in Pennsylvania in those early years, they were on the same health insurance policy. And after separating, they found out that to get separate policies, they had to produce divorce papers even though they'd never been married.
0: <laughs> well, isn't that interesting? But
1: then after all those years, they, they actually did get married for real. So I like to tell people that he got divorced and then he got married to her. And I figure that saved him a ton of money. just <laughs> <laughs> kind of a chuckle around here when I tell that. We love playing it. It's got a little zip in it, and it has kind of a almost a bluegrass feel to it. All of this stuff you can find through my website at DarylSongs.com.
0: Okay, DarylSongs.com. and that's a D A R R E L L uh-huh. songs. O-N-G-S.com. S.com. All right, so this piece is called Second Chance.
2: I can't remember just why we said goodbye so long ago and way back when I'm just so grateful that we've got this chance to try and be together once again no. Cause it's a rare occasion when we get a second chance To make a first impression or to redance the last dance now and then i recommend we resurrect romance and give love a second chance when we were younger we needed separate space our own time and our own love today it's both old and it's new little different me little different you i've been around the world and i've seen a thing or two you've been around the world and i know you've seen it too given time to change your mind that's just what love can do now all i really need can't remember just why we said goodbye so long ago and way back when I'm just so happy we're together once again sure feels good to have a friend cause it's a rare occasion when we get a second chance to make a first impression or to redance the last dance Romance and give love a second chance. Now and then I recommend we resurrect romance and give love a second chance. Keep giving love that second chance.
0: All right, so the last piece that you sharing with us, is a piece called Real Love. So why don't you tell me about this one?
1: Well, Real Love is kind of a a jazzy tune, kind of a jazz blues rather than a country or bluegrass style. I was just trying to show you some different styles. But what makes this song special is My Dear Bride Deb. I dedicated this to her. Many of my songs on my Plain and Simple CD are are love songs in one fashion or another. But this one, this one is pretty sweet. It's got a nice little melody. And it's got some good lyrics in it, too. My favorite is the line that I shared with you before, I think. True love's not selfish. In fact, it's sacrificial. Always seeking something sweet to do. That's how I know I never knew real love until I fell in love with you. It kind of sums up what my bride shows me every day in both word and deed. He's been a real blessing to me when I sing that song. I really mean it. And this version that you're hearing is from that plain and simple album, which is just me doing guitar and vocals and Rick Hayden playing his upright bass. No fancy production work in there. We recorded 13 songs that way. Rick and I first met in late, in late 2008, just after he and his wife Holly moved to Tucson from Albany, New York. And he told me, Uh, at the Baha'i Center in Tucson, that he wanted to revive his acoustic ropes, and he was out shopping for for an upright bass and thought he'd found one that he might buy. And I said, wow, I would love to have someone play acoustic bass along with my songs, and maybe we could get into the 2009 Tucson Folk Festival, because it's a jury kind of application. You have to audition. And so uh, we got together and recorded uh, three songs for an audition CD and sent it in with our application, and darn if we weren't selected. And thankfully, we've been selected every year since. Uh, So we just played our fourth year at the Tucson Folk Festival, which is is quite a deal. They have five stages, ten hours a day for two days, uh, over 130 acts, and about 12,000 people come through that festival every year. We have a ball. This is one of our favorite tunes, Real Love. This is the one that touches my bride's heart so much.
2: I said I love you to others before I even thought it was true but now I know I never knew real love till I fell in love with you true love's not selfish in fact it's sacrificial always thinking something sweet to do that's how i know i never knew real love till i fell in love That it's infatuation. Cause I've been down that road before. This is a brand new situation. My heart knows is so much more. I said I love you to others before. I even thought it was true. But now I know I never knew real love Till I fell in love with you Till I fell in love
0: with you And it looks like you also have a YouTube video for this one.
1: Yeah, I did it for Valentine's Day this year. This is the advantage. You know, when you realize that it's too late for you to go out and buy something. <laughs> I made a collage video for Deb of some pictures of our wedding and other places we've been together, and I strung them together and kind of orchestrated it with this song. And I've gotten a lot of great feedback from it. People just seem to love it. She's gotten a lot of compliments, too, so it makes her feel good.
0: So these last two songs are on your latest CD, is that what you're saying?
1: They're on the Plain and Simple CD.
0: Plain and Simple
1: CD. We have a, a number of new songs that are still, we're still working on, and we'll go on our next one whenever we can get that done. All of us, of course, have our day jobs. You know, music is more of an avocation than a vocation for all of us. Now that I'm 65 miles north of my drummer and bass player, it makes rehearsals even a Challenge. But every time we get together, it's like we haven't been apart more than a couple of days. And uh, we always enjoy playing together. And they're just a couple of great guys. And behind us, too, I might add, both of them. So we'll have a a new CD here someday soon, I hope.
0: And, Daryl, your website again is com. That's D-A-R-R-E-L-L songs.com. And from there, they can find your CD?
1: That's right. There's uh, links to uh, a download site that I have on VibeDick. There's links to my Facebook page and also my YouTube channel. And all three of those use Daryl Elmer Rogers, all one word, D-A-R-R-E-L-L-E-L-M-E-R-R-O-D-G-E-R-S. So Facebook.com forward slash Daryl Elmer Rogers or YouTube.com forward slash Daryl Elmer Rogers. That's how you
0: can find me. So, Daryl, any last words before we close?
1: Well, yeah. I appreciate you, Warren. <laughs> I've listened to some of your interviews with some folks I've never met and some folks that I've known for years and years and years, and I really appreciate what you're doing with your little radio show here with the By Perspectives. It's great hearing folks. I, I was tickled by uh, your interview with Glenn Darling. Such a great guy he is, living up in, in Canada and whatnot. These are people that I've known and and met through the years, and it's great to visit with them through your program, and I I appreciate your work. And I just want to say to folks that are listening today, the Baha'i faith has something for everyone, regardless of your background or your avocation or your vocation. Somewhere in there, there is a connection that you can build to these teachings, and they will inspire and guide you in ways you cannot imagine. I shudder to think where I would have been through these years without the guidance of this faith. Mahalala has been so very, very good to me and continues to be so. And I think it's because he's taught me to realize that I'm not really a receptacle for his love. I am a conduit. I'm like a receptacle. A conduit never fills up unless it's flowing hard. And so the deal for me is to share as much of my goodwill and feelings and, and love for him as I can, because that makes the flow go even faster.
0: Well, Daryl, thank you so much for sharing your story. Say hi to your dear wife for me. I definitely will. And give, give my love to Deb. Okay. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Daryl Rogers, who is a singer-songwriter Darrell's most recent CD is called Plain and Simple. I'll have links to Darrell's music on my website. I play more of Darrell's songs at the conclusion of this program. For a copy of this and other interviews, you can go to the website www.abahaiperspective.com. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website www.baha'i.org where you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22UNITE. I hope you'll join me next time on a Baha'i perspective.
2: See what it was all about I saw abbreviations I could hardly figure out LOL means laugh out loud BTW by the way BRB means be right back Cause I've got more to say Of all the crazy acronyms My favorite one to spell rolling on the floor and laughing. ROTFL says I'm losing part of my anatomy because I'm laughing so. Well, I'm ROTFL, Yes, I'm a Wears a wig like Justin Bieber's hair. Well, I guess he got confused about the button that he used. His message is a wall post, and he's getting quite abused. I'm learning things about my friends I fear I should not know. figured out the phrases I was shocked by what they say Telling crazy details Of what they do each day Everybody seems so willing To reveal their private life Embarrassing their children Their husband or their wife Well, I guess I should be flattered That they trust me so well But if the truth be known here I'm R-O-T-F-L And I guess I have to thank them all For this candid camera show Cause I'm R-O-T-F-L Yes, I'm R-O-T-F-L to Vegas with her boss Should have stayed in Vegas such a loss He's quite the talent scout His photo left no doubt She's standing there beside him with her dress on inside out My sorry about of troubles Well I must say no, cause I'm ROTFL. Yes, I'm ROTFL. Now why would any husband wanna say He had a fling with some young waitress yesterday Yes, no one told him, perhaps they thought he knew. His wife, by her maiden name, is here on Facebook, too. Well, he's got my attention, but not sympathy, oh no. Cause I'm R-O-T-F-L. Yes, I'm R-O-T-F-L. Oh Tales and secrets I would not publicize, but there they are in acronyms right before my eyes. Each time they hit that enter key, they're putting on a show. And we're R O T F L A O. Yes, we're R O T F all. The lesson here is as plain as it can be Close nothing you don't want the world to see Remember friends will share As though they do not care Your embarrassment goes viral Laughing everywhere. If you ignore my warning, well, I feel you got to know. We'll all be ROTFLMAO. Yes, we're ROT.